I want to begin today with a question. Suppose, God forbid, that you were to die and you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? The average person would begin their answer with two words. Because I. Because I did many good things in my life. Because I lived a moral life. Because I was baptized. Because I went to church. Because I tried to treat others with respect. Because I tried to keep the Ten Commandments. Because I. Have you ever thought about the fact that those first two words, because I, indicate a serious flaw in our understanding of salvation? I think the first two words should be this. Because God. Not because I, but because God. True salvation is a result of what God has done for us not for what we do for ourselves. Let me ask you, are you confused when it comes to this matter of salvation? So, so many people are. So many people. Mike McKinley wrote a book entitled, Am I Really a Christian? In that book, he brought some clarity to this whole matter when he listed some common misconceptions. For instance, he wrote, that you are not a Christian just because you say you are. He indicated that you're not a Christian if you haven't been born again. He said you're not a Christian just because you like Jesus. He said you're not a Christian if you enjoy sin. He said you're not a Christian if you don't love other people. Now, to, to solidify what he said and, and what we're talking about today, I want to read to you what Jesus had to say about this matter of salvation. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. He said many, notice that, I tell you, this is one of the most frightening scriptures in the whole Bible. He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. My goodness, the, the scene here is the judgment, the, the judgment on the last day. And, and people are standing before the Lord Jesus Christ, who in fact will be the judge according to John chapter 5, verse 24. And, and, and they're saying, hey, I, 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 I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, look what I've done, look what I've done. And Jesus said, I 
never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus said that many people will miss heaven because of that perpendicular pronoun. I'm talking about the pronoun I. Let's go directly to the Word of God so that we can find the accuracy we desperately need when it comes to the matter of salvation. Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. You know, as I was working on this message, I got to thinking. You know, if there's one thing we better get right in this life, we better get this right. Be wrong about your income tax. It's far better to have to deal with IRS than it is to stand before Jesus and hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Nothing is more important than the salvation of your soul. Jesus said, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? While imprisoned in Rome, Paul wrote this letter to the believers who had planted this church in the pagan city of Ephesus. He wanted them to understand the truth about salvation and to remind them of the boundless blessings that flow out of true salvation and to challenge them to live out their faith in a way that would honor and glorify the Lord their God. Now before we dive into our text, uh, Ephesians chapter 8 verses, chapter 2 verses 8 through 10, I want to walk you through the context. Look in, in chapter 1, the chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And Paul wanted them to understand, and he wants us to understand, our pre-salvation condi condition. He said, look, you are spiritually dead you are being manipulated by the powers of darkness. And then in chapter 4, I love those first two, I mean verse 4. I love those first two words, but God. Aren't you glad for those two words? But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
You see, salvation is all about being delivered from spiritual death to abundant and eternal life. It's all about being delivered from bondage to the powers of darkness to the freedom we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about being delivered from the wrath of God to a vibrant, abiding relationship with the Son of the living God. So Paul summarized true salvation in these three verses we're going to look at today. Verses 8, verse 9, and verse 10. Now here's the truth. I, I want you to lock in your heart this morning. And I don't want you to, to miss this. I don't want you to um, not appreciate the truth of these words. I don't want you to neglect them whatsoever. And I don't want you to ever be deceived. Salvation is a free gift from God. Let, let me say that. It bears repeating. But because there are a lot of corners of this world today that you won't hear that message coming from. There, there's a lot of pulpits you won't hear that message coming from. There are a lot of people in the world who have different ideas about this matter of salvation. But I tell you, on the authority of the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of the living God, salvation is a free gift from God. So in this text, we clearly see how God saves. Number one, how God saves. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now in, in, in verses 4 through 7, we're we're introduced to a, an array of special words that give us a hint at the heart of God. We're introduced to the word mercy. We're introduced to the word love. We're introduced to the word grace and to the word kindness. You, you see, grace is God's choice to love and forgive and accept us when we've done absolutely nothing to earn it. Nothing. It is His unmerited favor. In Romans 6, 23, the Bible says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is a free gift that flows out of God's grace, not a reward for the things that we do. Look at verse 9. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let those six words sink into your heart and your soul. They are emphatic. God does not save you because you're athletic and you can bring a lot to the kingdom of God. God does not save you because you're a musical superstar and, and you bring a lot to the name of the kingdom. 
God does not save you because you come from a great family. God does not save you because you try your best. God does not save you because you go to church. God does not save you because you give to the poor. God does not save you because you are committed to the pro-life movement. As important as that that is, that doesn't save you. There's not one single thing that you can ever do in the span of your entire life to add to the finished work of Jesus that he has already accomplished for you so that you could be saved. God has chosen to save sinners by sheer grace. During an interview, an interview before his 50th college reunion, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg confessed that his mortality had started to dawn on him since he was now 72 years of age. He also said that he's been sobered by how many of his former classmates have passed away. But the author of the interview concluded, But if Bloomberg senses that he may not have as much time left as he would like, he has little doubt about what would await him on Judgment Day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he said with a grin, and I quote, this is a direct quote from Michael Bloomberg. He said, I am telling you, if there is a God... When I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Now that is pure foolishness. That is totally ignoring the teaching of the Bible. But we shouldn't be surprised. Because Jesus said there would be massive deception when it comes to that time when people are gathered to the judgment, the white throne judgment, when he judges the world. Hey, don't fall for this devilish lie that you can do anything to deliver yourself from spiritual death, from demonic bondage, and from the wrath of God. The only way, listen, the only way God can and will save anyone is by His grace alone. Salvation is a free gift from God. So we've seen how God saves. Now I want to show you who God saves. Look at verse 8 again. Uh, Circle that word grace in your Bible. For by grace you have been saved. That's how God saves. Now circle the word faith. That's who God saves. For For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, now let, let's make sure we got this straight because we can't be wrong about this. Cannot afford to be wrong about this. We are all sinners. We are all sinners, and the wages of our sin is death and eternal separation from God. Secondly, we can do absolutely nothing to save ourselves. 
Thirdly, God has chosen to save us by sheer grace. You, you got all those three now? That's very important. If all of that is true, and it is, then we long for an answer to this question, who does God save? Listen, God saves the person who puts their faith in Jesus. It's that simple. This word faith has three components to it. The first is this. For faith to be real, we must know who Jesus is, and we must know what he has done for us. I read an article uh, last week about Elon Musk, uh, maybe the richest man. I don't know who the richest man in the world is, but he got a lot, a lot of money. And you know what he said in this article? He said that he admired some of the things that Jesus had said. Now let me ask you the $64,000 question. Will admiring Jesus and, and his words get somebody into heaven? No. No, not, not any way, shape, form, or fashion. We've got to know who Jesus is. You can't put your faith in Jesus if you don't know who he is. And we've got to know what he has done for us. Listen, who is Jesus? He is God's perfect man and man's perfect God. He is the son of the living God. He came to this planet to save us by assuming our guilt and dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He was raised from the dead to prove that God the Father accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. I had a young man ask me one time. I'd share the gospel with him, shared it multiple times with him. And he looked me in the eye and he said this. He said, Pastor, I believe that Jesus was Son of God. But Pastor, I don't believe in the resurrection. Can I still be saved? I said, no, absolutely not. You say, Pastor, how in the world could you be so dogmatic about this matter with a young man who was wanting to evidently get his life right, and yet you say if he doesn't believe in the resurrection, he can't be saved? Do you have any biblical basis for saying that? I'm glad you asked that. I do. Take your Bible and look at Romans. Romans Chapter 10, look at this, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, if somebody does not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, can he be saved? No, not according to this scripture. See, that tells me that you don't know who Jesus is. Jesus was the son of God. He died on the cross for our sins. He spilled his blood so that we could be forgiven. And after three days, God raised him from the dead and Jesus is alive. 
And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day he's coming again. So you can't have genuine faith if you don't, do not know who Jesus is and what he has done for you. There, there's a, another component of faith. Uh, we, we must believe that this good news of Jesus is true. You've got to believe it's true. Having a, a general knowledge about who Jesus is will not save anyone. Do you know the Bible says in James 2.19 that the devils believe in God. The demons believe in God. But they won't be saved. You're not going to find a single demon in heaven when you get there if you're a born-again believer. I, I, guarantee, I guarantee this, folks. Praying for Jesus to help you through a financial crisis to heal your loved one or for wisdom to make a tough decision is temporary faith. It's not saving faith. It's not. Again, listen to the words of Jesus to the unbelieving Jews. In John 8, 24, he said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. These unbelieving Jewish leaders who were out to get Jesus had resisted the revelation of God concerning his son, Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are you convinced that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Are you convinced that after three days he was raised from the dead for your justification? Do you believe his promises? See, all of this is a part of faith. But there's a third component of faith. We must trust Jesus alone as our personal Savior and Lord. Consider the case of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. You know the story. Paul and Silas are, are beaten to within an inch of their life. They're thrown into the inner prison. There's a Roman jailer there, a, a Roman soldier who's responsible for them staying in jail. And God sends a great earthquake and all the prison doors come open and the jailer assumes that all the prisoners have escaped, including Paul and Silas, and he, he takes his sword and he's about to pierce his own heart, committing suicide. And Paul cries out from the inner prison, wait, we're all here. And this man is absolutely dumbfounded that these prisoners stayed in prison when they could have gone free. And he brought Paul and Silas out, started taking care of their wounds, and he asked a question. It's a question that maybe some of you are asking this morning. Maybe some of you sitting on your couch at home, you're, you're asking this question. Maybe you haven't verbalized it yet, but in your heart, you're asking this question. The, the Philippian jailer says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You, you know what Paul said to him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your family. Wow. Believe 
on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Listen, the Bible's clear. Jesus is our only hope of salvation. The Bible says in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. So here's the truth. You, you must embrace it today. Salvation is a free gift from God. So we've seen how God saves and who God saves. Now I want you to see what God expects. What does God expect? Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's nail down this truth once and for all. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But God saves us for a purpose. That there's a, a, a fallacy out, out here in the world today that, that you, you can be saved, Jesus will save you, and, and, and you got your ticket punched to heaven, and you can live any way you want to live. Is that biblical salvation? I'm telling you, so many people have bought into that myth Look, look at this verse, verse 10. The Bible says, for we are his workmanship. That word workmanship in the Greek language refers to something which is made. I want you to imagine an artist painting a beautiful picture. It's something which is made. It's a work of art. Or, or a sculptor taking a, uh, a piece of stone and chipping away and chipping away here and, 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 and taking that, that lifeless, formless piece of stone and turning it into something that is literally a work of art. That's the picture of this word workmanship. That's what God's done with you. Think about this. If you're a born-again believer, if you have received Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, the Bible says, not, not Chuck says, the Bible says that you are a work of art and God has created you. Look at that next word in, in verse 10, the word created. It refers to making something which has not existed before. Listen, when God saves someone, he does it one time, and it brings about a massive change in that person's life. Here's how Paul stated it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Look at Ephesians 4.24, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created. In other words, it didn't exist before, but it's been, it's, it's been created and exists now, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. 
Think about it. Consider Peter. Peter was an impulsive fisherman. And he became a mighty preacher of the gospel. Think about the uncontrollable Gadarene demoniac who became a bold disciple for Jesus. Think about John, the son of thunder, who had a, an anger problem, and he became the apostle of love. Think about the immoral woman at, at Samaria who had had five husbands and was living with a guy at the time without the benefit of marriage. And this immoral woman at Samaria became a passionate soul winner and brought many people out of the city to Jesus to be saved. Think about Saul, the bloodthirsty persecutor of the New Testament church who became a gospel-preaching missionary. Listen, God does not save people by good works. He saves people for good works. The idea that a person could be saved without being changed is totally foreign to the teaching of the Bible. Jonathan Edwards said this, I quote, he said, true salvation always produces an abiding change of nature and a true convert. Therefore, whenever holiness of life does not accompany a confession of conversion, it must be understood that this individual is not a Christian. Look at that phrase in verse 10, the last part of that verse. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which... God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, when I read that statement, I am absolutely amazed. I am befuddled. I believe it, but I don't understand it. When God saves someone, he creates them to be something they've never been before. The good works God expects out of every believer were in fact planned by God in advance. <laughs> could it be, could it be that God knew that he wanted me to be a preacher before he saved me? I, I don't know. How far in advance did God plan these good works he wanted to produce through my life? I don't know. But I tell you, it makes me want to pull my shoes off because I feel like I'm walking on holy ground when I read this verse. God knows how he wants to maximize the lives of believers for his glory. He knows what he wants to do through your life. He knows the good works that he wants to produce through you, and he knew them in advance. I love what Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 2, 11 to 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. 
instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous, notice this last part, zealous for good deeds. Grasping the reality of true salvation is crucial for your life as you live your life out on this planet. But may I say to you that grasping the reality of true salvation is even more crucial for that moment when you step into eternity. Today we walk through the scriptures. Now we know that salvation is a free gift from God. We know how God saves, who God saves, and what God expects. Here's a really important question. It's a question that only you can answer. So if you're sitting by your, by your spouse, don't elbow them. This is not for anybody else, it's just for you. And you have to answer this. Are you saved? Now that is a simple yet very profound question. Are you saved? Some of you may be thinking right now. See, that, that's something a preacher has to do. You, you have to anticipate what people are thinking. Some of you are thinking right now, can anybody really know for sure you're saved? Has anybody ever said that to you? How do you know you're saved? Can anybody really know they're saved? Well, the Bible says you can. In 1 John 5, 13, the Bible says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It is God's will for you to know for sure where you're going to spend eternity. Listen, as you walk up to death's door, I think you'll want to know for sure where you're going to go once you cross through that door and you walk into eternity, right? The Bible says you can know. So I'm going to invite you today, if you're asking that question, what must I do to be saved? Turn from your sin, turn from yourself, and turn to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him as your personal Savior and Lord. Hey, I wish all of you who are sitting on your couch were in this room and you had a chance to respond right here. But you know what? You can respond right there in your home. You can bow your knee before the Lord Jesus in your home. And you can turn from sin and self and put your faith and trust in him and receive him as your Savior and Lord. 
And whether you're here or whether you're at home, I want to encourage you to do just that today. In just a moment, I'm, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and invite our worship team and our staff to come, and we're going to line up across here. And if you're in this room and you want to make sure that you're saved, you come to one of our staff members. If you're home, you bow your knee. And you confess to Jesus your sin. And you ask him to forgive you and cleanse you. And you put your faith and trust in him. But if you're in this room today, if you're truly saved, I got some good news for you. You never have to fear losing your salvation. You don't ever have to fear that. Because your salvation was a free gift and you had nothing to do with it to begin with. It's a free gift of God. Look at verse 8 again. By grace you have been saved. Now the tense of that verb is very important. Here's what it means. It means in the past you were genuinely saved and the effects of your salvation will continue to impact your life now and for all of eternity. That's what the tense, that perfect tense verb means. So I challenge you as a born-again believer to humble yourself before God and allow Him to produce those good works that He planned to produce in and through you in advance. Live for Him, love Him with all your heart. Listen, every time that you pray, thank God for your salvation. Because it's a free gift from God. Let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray your Holy Spirit will use this word to bring people to salvation, bring believers to a confidence and to a, a desire to live out their faith in a way that will glorify and honor you. Lord, have your way in our hearts in Jesus' name. 